Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. In late 2019, the all-woman country supergroup The High Women released a rewritten cover of The Highwaymen, sung by the famous 80s country supergroup The Highwaymen, <laughs> featuring Johnny Cash, Chris Christopherson, Willie Nelson, and Waylon Jennings. The song is about the spirit of several male outlaws and tough guys, uh, high women, obviously, but also a sailor, a dam builder, and a starship captain. <laughs> yes, I know. Believe me, this is coming to witches at some point. In the high women's version, each line of the song instead features a woman who gave her life in struggles against sexist and racist persecution. For instance, one line is from the perspective of a Honduran migrant who dies in the desert so her children can make it to America. Another, a black woman killed by white supremacist violence during the Freedom Rides. In the second line of the song, singer-songwriter Amanda Shires takes on the persona of a female healer living in colonial Massachusetts. When locals catch her sleeping naked in the sun, they accuse her of witchcraft. And in the words of the song, the bastards hung me at that Salem gallows hill. Chances are, if you heard this song in passing, you would understand the meaning of these verses even without any historical context. There's a strong connection between women as healers and accusations of witchcraft in the popular imagination. Just as one example in the popular Stars series, Outlander, and the book series as well, Claire, who was a nurse in her modern day life, is prosecuted as a witch in 1740s Scotland after she contradicts a local priest over an ailing child's diagnosis. He says that he's possessed, but Claire knows that he's just eaten a poisonous plant. It makes perfect sense that women who dabbled in medicine would be accused of witchcraft. They were breaking gender norms, threatening the power and exclusivity of the medical profession, and maybe even contradicting God's will. One kind of woman healer in particular is most associated with witchcraft accusations. The midwife, who often had knowledge of herbs and folk healing, but also presided over women's reproductive health, brewing abortifacients, growing herbs that might prevent a pregnancy, and delivering babies. Midwives had access to the mysteries of birth and death, and to products of childbearing believed to have magical power, the call, the placenta, and the umbilical cord. It seems only logical that early modern people might look on a woman with that kind of power and position with suspicion, and that religious and medical authorities would look for ways to control such dangerous women. That midwives were regularly persecuted as witches was taken as a given for decades. It appeared in dozens of histories of witchcraft and has become entwined with the history of women and religious descent in colonial New England. But it also has more modern implications. We already mentioned that it's become embedded in popular culture, but it also became a touchstone for second wave feminists. The belief that midwives were persecuted as witches because they threatened the supremacy of the Catholic Church and the professional power of male physicians helped to add ideological fuel to the women's health movement of the 1970s, a part of the women's liberation movement that sought to reclaim women's health from the control of men. There's only one problem. It's not accurate. <laughs> Today, we're talking about the myth of the midwife witch, 
which means we're talking historiography. But if historiography is like the history equivalent of eating your vegetables, imagine this episode as chocolate chip zucchini bread or French fries or broccoli cheddar soup. You're going to get the veggies, but in a much more enticing delivery system. Plus, along the way, we'll have feisty feminists, anti-psychiatry psychiatrists, the Malleus Maleficarum, ancient sex cults, disgruntled Egyptologists, the creation of Wicca, master of horror H.P. Lovecraft, and, dun-dun-dun, everyone's favorite French philosopher, Michel Foucault. I'm Sarah. And I'm Avril. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. We want to thank all of our Patreon supporters, but especially our Excavator and Augur level patrons. You know who you are, but just in case the rest of you don't, Lauren, Eric, Denise, Colin, Maddie, Susan, Edward, Christopher, Peggy, Danielle, Maggie, and Iris, you are our heroes. Yes. Thank you from the deepest recesses of our cold, witchy hearts. Witchy hearts. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It may seem a little strange, but we're going to start our exploration of the midwife witch, not in the witch hunting years of early modern Europe or colonial New England, but in the United States during the tumultuous 1970s. Stick with us. It will make sense eventually. In the early 1970s, the women's liberation movement was well underway. Women, often veterans of the civil rights and anti-war movements, began to take what they had learned uh, about activism and started applying it to women's rights. If you've seen the Hulu series Mrs. America, you know that this was the moment of the fight over the Equal Rights Amendment, or the ERA, the almost century-long, ultimately futile attempt by feminists to get women's rights enshrined in the Constitution. This was also the era of consciousness-raising groups, where women met in bookstores, coffee shops, and other feminist spaces to discuss their own experiences and find solidarity in the experiences of others. It was often in these groups where individual women discovered that their experiences weren't isolated, but rather manifestations of patriarchy. After all, this is where the famous phrase, the personal is political, comes from. Women suddenly discovered that, for example, it wasn't just them that felt suffocated by life as a housewife or who had been raped or who had an unsatisfying sex life. These were shared experiences with a shared cause, sexism and the patriarchy. A major aspect of consciousness raising was focused on women's health. Women began to realize that they sometimes lacked even a basic understanding of their own bodies. Products of the baby boom, these women had been raised in a culture that taught them that women's bodies were shameful and mysterious. When women's bodily functions did appear in the public eye, it was often regarding their flaws. Take a look, for, for instance, at vintage Listerine ads that tried to convince women, in coded language, of course, that their disgusting vaginas would drive men away unless they freshened it up with Listerine. Ugh. Ugh. Ouch. I, I know. Oh, Doesn't yeah. that sound terrible? Yes. That... I'll try to find um, one of these ads and put it in the show notes in case you've never seen them before. They're pretty wild. Gross. Issues of women's health frequently came up in consciousness raising. Frustrations with male doctors who didn't take their complaints or needs seriously. 
difficulty getting reproductive care like birth control or abortion, bad experiences with labor and delivery, limited freedom to make healthcare decisions. For instance, our friend Lizzie Reese wrote an essay for Nursing Cleo about her experience in a group instruction session she had to take in order to get a cervical cap at the Berkeley Women's Health Collective in the 1980s. She had to take a class with around 15 other women during which everyone pulled down their pants or skirts and looked at their vulvas with hand mirrors. Even though Lizzie writes about feeling a little shocked at first, she also says it was super transformative because it demonstrated that all vulvas are normal. Some women had natural hair, others had trimmed or shaved, some had larger labia than others, some had visible clitorises, etc. This was the kind of radical consciousness that the women's health movement advocated for. Um, so what this made me think of was that when I was in college, I was in a club called Sex Collective, and it was sort of a, a similar experience for me. I mean, we didn't take our clothes off and, like, compare vaginas, but we talked really openly and honestly about sex, and that was something that I had literally never done in my entire life, not even with my closest friends in high school. That kind of experience is such a huge intervention in our sex and body shaming culture, even now, that it can radically change the way that you think about yourself and about the world around you. And it often powerfully reveals the role that patriarchy has made in your life. Um, if a male sex partner has shamed you for having a weird labia or for not looking or smelling or whatever right, looking at a room full of other vulvas is going to prove pretty quickly that he was the asshole and there's nothing wrong with you or your body. So this is still something that's that's pretty powerful, I think, today. Anyway, the Bible of the women's health movement was born out of this kind of consciousness raising. In the late 1960s, inspired by a discussion at a conference about women and their bodies, a group of women in Boston created what they called the Doctors Group, a consciousness raising group dedicated specifically to talking about women's health. The doctor's group came to the conclusion that women wanted and needed to learn about and discuss their bodies away from the male medical gaze. And so they decided to split up and each research an issue to then present to the rest of the group. This idea then morphed into a course on women's bodies, which was so successful that the group decided to take it even further, compiling their course materials into a health reference for women by women, the 1970 feminist classic, Our Bodies, Ourselves. In the introduction to the 1973 edition of Our Bodies, Ourselves, the creators wrote that, quote, we had all experienced similar feelings of frustration and anger towards specific doctors and the medical gaze in general. And initially, we wanted to do something about those doctors who were condescending, paternalistic, judgmental, and non-informative. Our Bodies Ourselves was born out of the collective feminist anger at a male-dominated medical profession that mistreated, ignored, controlled, and harmed women. Not only were women angry about doctors that shamed them about menstruation or refused to give them birth control, women were angry about the way that male doctors controlled childbirth. In the mid-century United States, childbirth was highly medicalized. Women gave birth in the hospital, often under the haze of twilight sleep or sedation that rendered them almost entirely passive participants. Sarah thinks we should do an entire episode on the history of childbirth. I'll leave that to, the, to the listeners to decide. <laughs> There's a lot there. I mean, it's it would be interesting. There's a lot of um, it would be an interesting companion to like this episode or to some of even like Marissa's episodes. She talks about like 
this kind of stuff all the time. So, But you mean like the history of childbirth just in like the 20th century America? Because if we do the history of childbirth. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, that's that's too much. <laughs> I can't even I can't even wrap my head around that. Right. But like it would be interesting to do episode or episodes about childbirth. You could do an entire podcast about Definitely. childbirth yeah. history. I'm going to pass on that one. <laughs> That's not my cup of tea. Um, the result, though, anyway. Anyway, so the result of the childbirth being highly medicalized was that birth was often a deeply unpleasant and disempowering experience. And, and so it became a major focus of the women's health movement. In the 1970s, the home birth and natural birth movements arose out of the women's health movement, along with a resurgence of midwifery as a way to reclaim birth from the largely male domain of obstetrics. As often happens in social movements, second wave feminists began to look to the past to help them frame their frustrations. For reference, women's history as a discipline was in its earliest days. Uh, for instance, the first graduate program in women's history was established by Gerda Lerner at Sarah Lawrence College in 1972. So this was really new. And just as feminists wanted to reclaim knowledge of their bodies, which had been ignored by male doctors, they wanted to reclaim knowledge of their pasts, which had been ignored by male historians. And often still is. <laughs> Women historians like Sheila Robotham, Gerda Lerner, Joan Scott, Anne Furore Scott, Natalie Zeman Davis, and Linda Kerber, and, and others were all just beginning to totally change the field with their social histories of women at this moment. So it's not surprising that all of these things, the birth of women's history, the women's health movement, and second wave feminism would sort of collide in the attempt to write the history of women's health. Women historians were also just beginning to do that work, but many of the early works in the field wouldn't be published until the early 1980s. So just as one example, Regina Morantz Sanchez's research on Elizabeth Blackwell and Mary Putnam Jacoby, for instance, was first published in 1982, and that's kind of one of the pioneering works in this field. So instead, the work that had perhaps the broadest impact on the history of women and medicine, and of course, on the history of witchcraft, came from two non-historians, biologist-turned-writer Barbara Ehrenreich and sociologist Deirdre English. In the early 70s, Ehrenreich and English were both young professors at the State University of New York at Old Westbury. As they later recalled, the campus was a hotbed of political awakening. Inspired by the Boston Women's Health Book Collective, that group that ran the women's health course that went on to become Our Bodies Ourselves, Aaron Reich and English began hosting similar courses at Old Westbury. As part of the course, they began to read up on the history of women in medicine. There wasn't much to read. Again, those histories were just being written. But what they did find repeatedly noted was that women had been very active in medicine as midwives before the rise of professional medicine. But when that bit of information was offered, it was as a negative that those women represented a sort of dark age of primitive medicine that was banished by the rise of a scientifically sound modern medical profession. <laughs> yeah, and add to that male, right? Male mm. medical profession. And white. Yes, exactly. Aaron Reich and English were inspired by this tidbit. 
to them reading in the midst of a health movement dedicated to revealing how the male-dominated medical profession had failed women, it was like a lightning bolt. Women had once had a powerful place in the world of healing, but were pushed out by men who sought to control women's bodies. It was the perfect explanation for the moment that they were living as women's health activists. Aaron Reich and English took their initial reading and wrote it up as a conference paper, which they presented at a women's health conference in 1972. In that paper, they talked about the ways that women had been pushed out of healing work by professional medicine in the United States, and also went back even further to talk about how women healers had actually been pushed out of medicine through accusations of witchcraft. This portion of the paper was inspired by the work of Thomas Zaz, a Hungarian-born psychiatrist who taught at SUNY Upstate Medical University in Syracuse. Something that I think is wild about this is that this is like a controversy that was entirely born in the SUNY system. (laughs) Yes. Uh, I think that's great. So we have to detour here just briefly to explain who Zaz was. So yes, Zaz was a psychiatrist, but he was famously a critic of psychiatry's abuses. Zaz went even further, though, and questioned the reality of mental illness itself. In 1961, he wrote a book called The Myth of Mental Illness that essentially argued that mental illness was a kind of metaphor used to describe behavior that didn't fit into social expectations. An example Zaz used was the diagnosis of hysteria, which was nearly always given to women who failed in one way or another to meet the expectations of womanhood. So, you know, to if you need an example of this, the classic example is the Charlotte Perkins Gilman story, The Yellow Wallpaper, right? This is a woman who depending on how you read the story, probably has something like postpartum depression or something like that. She's feeling very stifled. And the the way to heal her, she's diagnosed with neurasthenia, which is kind of an updated way of diagnosing someone with hysteria, a woman with hysteria. And in order to uh, cure her, the the prescription is the rest cure, which is to kind of further domesticate her, literally lock her in a room and make her not do anything to like make her as, you know, to go to the farthest extreme of domesticity. Right. Right. So it's much more about expectations of what women should do and how they should behave than it is about actual mental illness. So essentially, it wasn't the woman who was actually ill necessarily, but that society needed a way to control and punish unacceptable behavior. Zaz's theories, along um, with his contemporary Michel Foucault's books like A History of Madness, The Birth of the Clinic, and Discipline and Punish, which were all written in the 1960s and early 70s, helped to give shape to an anti-psychiatry and mad pride movement. Both Zaz and Foucault were writing about the ways that the authorities used systems of surveillance to control aberrant behaviors, which is biopower, as Foucault calls it, and uh, the ways that the medical profession ensured that they acquired and maintained that power. So (laughs) that was a lot. How does any of this come back around to Ehrenreich and English and witchcraft? Well, 
let me take a stab at that. Yes. Just two years before Aaron Reichen English wrote their conference paper, Saz had recently published another book called The Manufacture of Mental Illness. This book took his theory about mental illness as metaphor and tool for control and compared it to witch hunting. In the introduction, Saz writes this, quote, Nearly a decade ago, in the myth of mental illness, I tried to show that the concept of mental illness has the same logical and empirical statics, status as the concept of witchcraft. In short, that witchcraft and mental illness are imprecise and all-encompassing concepts, adapted to whatever uses the priest or physician or lay diagnostician wishes to put them. Now I propose to show the concept of mental illness serves the same social function in the modern world as did the concept of witchcraft in the late Middle Ages. In short, that the belief in mental illness and social actions to which it leads have the same moral implications and political consequences as had the belief in witchcraft and the social action to which it led. In other words, both the diagnosis of mental illness and the accusation of witchcraft were ways of controlling socially unacceptable behavior, both employed by authorities desperate to maintain social power and control, the Catholic Church and the medical profession. He also makes another argument that modern psychiatrists have determined that the, quote, medieval witch was a mentally diseased individual, but that in reality, quote, she was a magician, a sorceress, and above all, a healer, a midwife and physician. But the medical profession benefits from pretending witches were all just crazy because it means that they weren't really medical practitioners. Because if they were, they would be their own professional predecessors. This is why, Saz writes, quote, The modern physician, and especially the psychiatrist, systematically repudiates his real medical ancestor, the lowly and disreputable sorcerer and witch. Instead, he prefers to trace his descent directly from the Hippocratic physicians of ancient Greece. Right. So that's a lot. Um, but essentially what Zaz is saying is that um, doctors and psychiatrists today benefit from, you know, this theory that that Zaz says they have which is that witches were all just like, you know, crazy people, because otherwise they would have to admit that not only were they descended from the greatness that was Hippocrates, they were also descended from essentially witches and sorcerers. And they don't want to have to to do that. Right. Instead, they're just going to kind of cast them off as um, aberrations. So Aaron Reich and English were inspired by Zaz's argument, which, again, lined up exactly with the core aims of the women's health movement. When their conference paper was really well received, they decided to expand and publish it so that they could reach more readers, especially feminist consciousness raising reading and discussion groups like the ones that had led to the paper in the first place. Um, and I should explain, there was like a thriving movement in pamphlet writing, just like later in like the early 90s, this would be like zine writing. Do you know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Where it's like these kind of informal writings that are published outside of like the traditional publishing system. Um, eventually they do publish it with a press, but the press is a, a, a it's called the feminist press, which was established by like one of their uh, colleagues. Um, and so these pamphlets were 
sort of short and to the point and they were um sort of polemical like they were very political and they were designed specifically to be passed around cheaply to these other consciousness raising groups to kind of spread the word of the movement so that's that's how they initially publish it the result was a pamphlet called witches midwives and nurses uh, which was eventually published by the newly established Feminist Press in 1973. So it was first published, I think, in 1972 as a really informal pamphlet. Then it was published again um, officially in 1973. The pamphlet is a history, but it's also sort of like a manifesto or a call to arms. Ehrenreich in English claimed that midwives were pushed out of medicine first by the witch hunters, then again later by the doctors. I'll read you a bit from the introduction so you can get a sense of its tone. Quote, our subservience is reinforced by our ignorance and our ignorance is enforced. Nurses are taught not to question, not to challenge. The doctor knows best. He is the shaman in touch with the forbidden, mystically complex world of science, which we have been taught is beyond our grasp. Women health workers are alienated from the scientific substance of their work, restricted to the womanly business of nurturing and housekeeping, a passive, silent majority. We are told that our subservience is biologically ordained. Women are inherently nurse-like and not doctor-like. Sometimes we even try to console ourselves with the theory that we were defeated by anatomy before we were defeated by men, that women have been so trapped by the cycles of menstruation and reproduction that they have never been free and creative agents outside of their homes. Another myth fostered by conventional medical histories is that male professionals won out on the strength of their superior technology. According to these accounts, male science more or less automatically replaced female superstition, which from then on was called old wives' tales. But history belies these theories. Yeah, so like really old school, second wave feminist, like raised fists the whole time. (laughs) Ehrenreich and English and Saz were all onto something. We know now, after decades of published histories of childbirth, that starting in the 18th century, more doctors, first called man midwives and later obstetricians, began delivering babies and and midwifery started to fall out of favor. This happened for a variety of, of reasons. Man midwives wanted to control birth because it was a good source of income. They thought the midwives were unscientific old crones. They believed birth was a medical event that should be controlled by professional doctors. And I should point out, we know that those aren't the only reasons. Like, there are other reasons um, that are also legitimate. Like, for instance, doctors had access to things like laudanum that could, you know, help with pain management during birth. And that was actually enticing to people. Or they used tools like forceps, which could make deliveries more successful. Um, there are lots more reasons. But those ones that, that Averill mentioned were the ones that in the 70s, writers were the most concerned with. So Aaron Reich and English and Sass, they were all right that male doctors work to inscribe gender into medical theories and diagnoses, proving women's inferiority, or at least her difference, in biology. Just take a look at Edward Clark's writing about women's education, for instance. 
And they were right that all of this was directly responsible for creating the miserable state of women's health care in the mid-20th century, which led second-wave feminists to start the women's health movement. Edward Clark, in case you're unfamiliar, is the uh, late 19th century doctor who writes about how women, uh, when they're educated, become very sick because it their brains steal all of the blood from their uteruses, which makes them go crazy. <laughs> so that's what causes menopause. Right. It Schooling. makes makes women, uh, you know, become hysterical and and unhappy and unable to have good, healthy American babies because their sad little bodies can only provide blood to one organ at a time. And it should be their uterus, not their brain. But that's actually true about men and inflated penises, right? <laughs> it stops their brains from functioning, right? Yeah. Hashtag facts. Anyway. So, but what about that other claim? That midwives were especially persecuted as witches. If anything, that's the claim that seems the most innocuous. All these other claims are bigger, broader, and more academic. And the claim that midwives were often accused of witchcraft seems obvious to the point of not even being noteworthy. Midwives were known to use charms, herbs, and incantations. They had access to products of birth believed to have magical powers, such as the call, the umbilical cord, and placenta. They presided over all female gatherings focused on the mysterious, at least to men anyway, event of birth, and they were intimately connected to women's sexuality and fertility. It's almost obvious that they would be implicated in witchcraft regularly. But in 1990, historian David Harley published an article in the Society for the Social History of Medicine that called out this claim specifically. Harley sort of systematically dismantles the idea that midwives were regularly accused of witchcraft by going directly to, shock of shocks, the primary source material. And what he shows is that actually, while midwives occasionally appear among the lists of people accused or executed for witchcraft, it was only in very small numbers, no more than any other profession or position in society. For instance, some German statistics show that while midwives were executed, they represented a small percentage of the overall number of the condemned. In October 1582, 38 witches were burned in Waldkirch in Bresgau, of which four were midwives, which represents about 10%. That same month, 36 accused witches were burned in Turkheim in Alsace, of which two were midwives, which represents about 5%. Um, and in Shangao, between 1589 and 1592, there were only three midwives among 63 accused witches executed, about 4%. In many cases where a midwife was accused or executed, he points out that they were often tried for reasons other than their midwifery. In other cases, they were tried but not accused of witchcraft. For instance, one Paris midwife named La Dame Constantine was tried and executed for causing a woman's death in a botched abortion. But it wasn't suggested that she was a witch or that midwives as a class were dangerous or suspicious. In fact, French doctors were generally accepting of midwives, even if they sometimes were critical of their less scientific practices. In English history, Harley argues that, quote, the case for the existence of the midwife witch 
rests on only two famous examples. The first was the case of Ursley Kemp, who was accused in 1582 when she had an argument with her neighbor Grace Thurlow, after which the neighbor's baby fell from its crib and died. Nowhere in the source on Kemp's trial is it stated that she was a midwife, though it seems that she may have been a wet nurse. The claim that Kemp was a midwife comes only from the American historian Wallace Notstein's 1911 History of Witchcraft in England. The second case is of a Mrs. Pepper, (laughs) who had diagnosed a sick man of being bewitched, but then failed to cure him, leading to the accusation that she herself had done the bewitching. In Mrs. Pepper's case, she really was a midwife, but midwifery had absolutely nothing to do with her accusation. Sometimes the connection to midwifery was inferred by later historians. For instance, Agnes Sampson, a woman accused in Scottish King James VI's 1590 witch hunts, admitted to giving women magical concoctions to ease labor pains. But nowhere was she described as a midwife until an 1834 book called Darker Superstitions of Scotland. A few midwives were accused in later Scottish witch trials in the 17th century, but so too were many women who were not midwives. And also in the 17th century are examples of midwives accused of practicing witchcrafts who were acquitted. Margaret Reed was accused of brewing magical medicines by a confessed witch, but authorities took no action against her. In fact, Harley argues, sometimes it was actually harder to convict a midwife accused of witchcraft than it was to convict her of a straightforward crime, pointing to two cases of infanticide to illustrate his point. In the case where the accused midwife was also accused of witchcraft, the midwife was acquitted. In the other, where the woman was accused only of murder, uh, and there was two women in that case, they were both convicted. Hmm. Harley also points out the muddled history of the midwife witch in New England witch hunts. While midwives were strongly associated with Puritan witch hunts, Harley shows that this association rests on a bunch of mixed-up half-truths. In the case of two women often noted as colonial midwife witches, Margaret Jones and Elizabeth Morse, there's zero evidence in their trial records that they were midwives. Two other women, Jane Hawkins and Anne Hutchinson, are also usually brought up as examples of midwife witches, but their case is even more complicated. Neither was actually accused or even tried for witchcraft. Instead, the women were the subject of what one historian described as whispers of witchcraft because they were both present when a third woman, Mary Dyer, gave birth to a severely deformed stillborn fetus. I should interrupt just to say they think that, um, I think some historians have posited that the the fetus had spina bifida. Is that important? Yeah, that would explain why it was was deformed, that it was, and that it didn't survive. Hmm. Hawkins was explicitly described as the midwife present at the birth, but Hutchinson was more likely only present as a gossip or a woman who came to a birth to comfort and care for the laboring mother. Gossips were not midwives, just neighbors, relatives, and friends. But the so-called monstrous birth became a sticking point when Hutchinson, Hawkins, and Dyer all ran afoul of Puritan authorities in Boston for having heretical religious views. Anne Hutchinson, famously, was tried not for witchcraft, but for heresy, as she held religious meetings and taught theology that contradicted that of the Puritan authorities in Boston. Hutchinson herself also had a monstrous birth in 1638. 
All three women were banished for heresy, and Dyer, who refused to stay out of Boston, was eventually executed in 1660. Somehow, in all the histories of the period, all three women became associated with both midwifery and witchcraft because of their association, in one way or another, with the monstrous births, even though none were officially accused of witchcraft and only one was actually a midwife. This is really, uh, this whole thing was really wild, and it took me a really long time and a lot of reading to, like, make sense of this. Um, Because if all of these stories of midwife witches don't have any basis in the primary sources, then where did they come from, right? How did they become so entrenched? We already sort of hinted at the answer. They came from secondary sources. Take, for instance, the case of Anne Hutchinson. The claim that she was a midwife stems from one remark made by John Winthrop, describing her as, quote, a woman very helpful in the times of childbirth and talking about her presence at Mary Dyer's birth. Somewhere along the line, those two things morphed into claims that Hutchinson was herself a midwife, which was then just repeated by historians for decades. And even now, a quick Google search will show that this is just embedded in the popular knowledge of Hutchinson. Seriously, as I was trying to look up information and reading on this, I encountered the claim that Hutchinson was a midwife, even going so far, people saying that she was a very wise midwife and that she was a very experienced midwife and that her her theological ideas came to her while she was presiding at births. Like people have like added information to this, right? Um, information in quotes. They've added to this idea that um, is just kind of like secondary sources piling on secondary sources. It's just become repeated so many times that it's just part of the story. So where did Aaron Reich and English get that idea other than the work of Thomas Zaz, right? Where did they get the idea of the midwife witch other than Thomas Zaz? Well, that's where things get even more weird. (laughs) They picked it up from both a primary and a secondary source. Not being historians, they did the equivalent of someone repeating the claim that Anne Hutchinson was a midwife. They repeated claims that were themselves based on poor research. The first and likely most powerful source that Aaron Reich and English cite is the ubiquitous witch hunting manual Malleus Maleficarum, or the Hammer of Witches, published in 1486 by German Catholic priest and witchcraft inquisitor Heinrich Kramer. I thought it had two authors. It, it, it does, but there is some dispute over the extent to which Jacob Sprenger actually had anything to do with it. Hmm. Um, there is, I guess the pre- prevailing theory is that his name was actually kind of tacked on after it was already published. So most historians sort of credit it to Heinrich Kramer as the writer. And I should also say, he also has this like weird Latinized name that he goes by that's like Institious or Institious or something like that, that I can't, I can never remember it because I always think of it as Springer and Kramer. So I am not using that name. (laughs) Okay. It just confused me. (laughs) There we go. The Malleus is the most well-known witch hunting manual, and in the early 1970s, it was the only one that would have been available in print and translated into English. So it's not really surprising that Ehrenreich and English were so influenced by it. 
The only problem is that the Malleus isn't accurate. It's the product of one Inquisitor, Kramer, who was obsessed with the witch's sexuality to agree that weirded out even his own fellow Inquisitors. In fact, the publication of the Malleus came about after Kramer was expelled from the Inquisition of suspected witch Helena Sherbaron for asking too many explicitly sexual questions. <laughs> Infuriated, Kramer compiled his ideas about the practices and dangers of witches into what became the Hammer of Witches. It seems like that's why the book is so obsessed with witches' dangerous sexuality, particularly the fear that they were collecting up dicks and storing them in trees. Right. That's my favorite part of Malleus Maleficarum. (laughs) And my gift to Marissa this year is a dick tree pillow. Yes. Yes. Which I love. Yes. In the text, Kramer tells all sorts of horrible tales about midwives catching babies and killing them or pretending that they're stillborn to use in rituals or offer to the devil. Here, Kramer was tapping into folk beliefs that witches' use of the fat of unbaptized babies um, to make their flying ointments, uh, the goo that they, you know, rubbed on themselves to allow them to fly. Other theories were that witches ate babies or offered them directly to Satan. Who would be in a better position to do that than a midwife? It made sense then that Kramer could claim that witches had told him that, quote, no one does more harm to the Catholic faith than midwives. Not only should we remember that the manual was the product of just one obsessive witch hunter, Harley warns that the Malleus wasn't necessarily all that influential during its day. It may have been referenced in some witch trials, but only in a limited sense. It's become more influential in histories than it likely actually was um, as an actual witch hunting manual, probably because it's, you know, so lurid and ridiculous. Right. It's not that it was never used. It definitely was. It was just used in certain locations um, in Western Europe and, and not everywhere it wasn't like i think people think that it was the witch hunting manual and as you know if you listen to avril's um episode there were lots of witch hunting manuals including one by james the the sixth slash james the first right um it's just that malleus maleficarum has somehow like stuck in our brains probably because it 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 is so ridiculous and so it makes these crazy claims um and a lot of those claims Kramer himself sort of plagiarized from even going all the way back to ancient writers like Pliny, like this idea of the fat of unbaptized babies. That's like a really old belief, right? So it's he's just kind of like collecting things and putting it all into the witchcraft frame. Hmm. So aside from Malleus, the other source that Ehrenreich and English relied on was Margaret Murray's The Witch Cult in Western Europe. So Malleus is the primary source that they're using. This was the secondary source that they really relied on. Margaret Murray herself a, was a fascinating figure. She was a feminist from a wealthy British family. She was born in India, um, and she went on to go to the University College of London and become an Egyptologist. During World War I, Murray was frustrated in her Egyptology research because she wasn't able to do fieldwork because of the, the, the war. And also, of course, she was marginalized in the Egyptology community because she was a woman. So there's that aspect of it as well. Um, and so she started to become more interested in anthropology and folklore. 
she was first interested in the search for the Holy Grail. And she wrote a bunch of things about, you know, drawing connections between ancient Egypt and the Grail. There's a, Margaret Murray's got a lot going on. Uh, But then eventually she started to research witchcraft. Her first work on witchcraft resulted in the book, The Witch Cult in Western Europe, which was published in 1921. Murray had a uh, very interesting and now completely discredited take on the history of European witchcraft. Murray argued that the women accused of witchcraft were real. In other words, they they were really practicing a kind of religion that contradicted Christianity. So she says, no, they weren't really flying around or anything, um, despite what another scholar, Catholic scholar, tried to claim, which was that they were they were really witches and they were really doing all of the crazy shit that they said they were doing. She doesn't you know, believe in that. But according to her theory, the accused witches were part of an ancient fertility cult that was preserving pagan religion despite the best efforts of the Catholic Church. The cult performed fertility rites that included the witches having sex with the male representatives of the devil or sometimes being painfully penetrated by artificial phalluses to improve harvests, ensure the fertility of livestock, and encourage childbearing in the community. I mean, I read parts of this book and it is, there is a lot. She talks about artificial phalluses, that's what she calls them, artificial phalluses, a lot. And she goes into detail about how much the artificial phalluses would have hurt, but the witches were willing to do it. It was crazy. Murray built her case on the transcripts of witch trials. So she actually is using primary sources, but she took testimony given by the accused under torture as entirely truthful and then reinterpreted primary source descriptions of wild allegations to be evidence of less hard to believe happenings. It's wild. <laughs> yeah, that's um, bonkers. For instance, Murray claimed that the witches' Sabbaths, which were, you know, lurid meetings of covens, were, were just religious observations and explained descriptions of witches dancing around Satan or turning into animal familiars as just women dancing around a person dressed as the horned god or wearing masks to appear as cats or dogs. She even came up with tons of details about ceremonies, gatherings, and rituals. For example, she insisted that Covens had exactly 13 members. This appears to have been based on just one statement from one accused witch. Murray makes blanket statements with little to no evidence, including the claim that midwives were central to Covens. For instance, in her second book, The God of the Witches... Murray states that during the witches' Sabbath, all the witches reported on what they had done during the course of the week and asked the chief, or head of the coven, for his consultation on certain things. I love this idea that they're like, okay, now it's time to report on all of the witchy things you did this week. <laughs> it's like a Girl Scout meeting. <laughs> who's, who's taking notes? <laughs> Murray asserts, quote, these matters were usually cases of illness, for the witches of a coven were always the healer in a village. In The Witch Cult in Western Europe, she writes about claims that witches stole fertility and connects this to midwifery. Quote, the number of midwives who practiced witchcraft points also to this fact 
They claim to be able to cause and prevent pregnancy, to cause and to prevent an easy delivery, to cast the labor pains, and in every way to have power over the generative organs of both sexes. In short, it is possible to say that, in the 16th and 17th centuries, the better the midwife, the better the witch. She offers no evidence for any of these claims. Nope. <laughs> also in The God of the Witches, Murray writes that, quote, throughout the country, the witch or wise woman, the sage femme, was always called in at childbirth. Many of these women were highly skilled, and it is on record that some could perform the cesarean operation with complete success for both mother and child. Harley called this claim improbable, and um, points out that Murray deploys a kind of, he says, sleight of hand in which she treats witches, wise women, and midwives as all interchangeable, but they were not. Wise women practiced white witchcraft, which historian Lee Whaley describes as, quote, the practice of various types of traditional healing from folk medicine to positive magic using the recitation of prayers or chants and sometimes the use of magnets to bring about health and well-being. While it is possible that a wise woman sometimes delivered babies, they were not midwives. This kind of white magic was popular and widely used, even though it was officially condemned by the Catholic Church. This is actually a really important point. Women accused of witchcraft often did have an association with healing, magical healing. This is exactly, Averill, what you were talking about in your episode, right? In fact, other historians, such as Rita Horsley and Richard Horsley, have argued that there were actually several categories of women health workers, including wise women or white witches, sorcerers and midwives, and that while it was fairly common for wise women to be accused of witchcraft, it was not common for midwives to be accused. Wise women tended to be older, often single, marginal women, making them already a little suspicious. They also offered herbal remedies and charms, and while patrons might appreciate them when they worked, it was also easy for disgruntled or frightened customers to turn on a wise woman whose white magic had failed. And while this kind of healing magic was popularly considered good, there was always a fine line between white and black magic, and especially in the eyes of the church, which believed that any magic, whether good or bad, must come from an association with Satan. Midwives, on the other hand, as Harley and other historians have shown, were often highly regarded and valued members of society, even if the local doctor sometimes grumbled about her. In fact, midwives were often involved in witchcraft trials not as the accused, but as experts brought in to perform medical examinations of both victim and witch because of their knowledge of women's bodies. In 1634, two English royal surgeons appointed a panel of midwives to inspect the bodies of a group of accused witches. In 1699, a midwife inspected the dead body of a suspected witch, at the request of a priest, and reported all sorts of strange things about the women's genitals. Midwives also provided testimony in trials regarding monstrous births, which were often considered evidence of sexual dalliance with the devil, and were brought in to investigate accusations of rape, bastardy, and infanticide. At the same time, there's evidence that authorities were at least concerned about midwives. Several localities required midwives to take a pledge that they would not use magic or sorcery or interfere with labor pains. For instance, in 
English pledge from 1567 required midwives promise to promise not to, quote, use any kind of sorcery or incantation in the time of the travail of women. And a church ordinance from Würzburg, Mainz, Wormser in Germany barred midwives from using superstitious methods to induce labor or lessen birth pains. But these were among lots of different requirements on midwives. They also couldn't give hard medic medications, analyze urine or blood, or use forceps, which were all limited to use by professional physicians. And it's important to remember that just because the ordinance or pledge existed, it didn't mean it was actually happening, or that regular folks agreed with it. Murray's work was super problematic, but it had sticking power, probably because it was so interesting, <laughs> right? It's so, it makes such interesting claims. Yeah. Not only did it influence many later histories of witchcraft, it also seeped into the popular imagination. How could it not, right? Mm -hmm. An ancient pagan fertility cult full of traditional woman healers that performed creepy sex rituals. I mean, that's gold, <laughs> right? I'd read it. Murray's theories entered the mainstream in a few ways. In the late 1920s, Murray was asked to write the entry on witchcraft in the 1929 edition of Encyclopedia Britannica. Her entry, of course, included the fertility cult theory, spreading her theory far wider than her own publications ever could. Now, I tried desperately to find a copy of it uh, digitized to see whether she included specifically midwifery in the Encyclopedia Britannica entry, but I couldn't find that volume. I could find many other volumes of the 1929 edition, but not that one. Hmm. Um, so it's possible that it was also in there. Um, I should also say that I'm fairly certain that um, Murray's entry in Encyclopedia Britannica was still there in the 1968 edition. Hmm. I read that in one source. It, I, it could be inaccurate because I did not check the 1968 edition but that would also make sense if Aaron Reich and English you know went to Murray as an expert that it was still available basically in the edition of Encyclopedia Britannica that they would have had easily access to Murray's work also entered the non-academic world in its influence on the birth of Wicca the modern pagan religion Gerald Gardner, a fellow folklorist, not only adopted Murray's theory entirely, although almost every other folklorist totally disagreed with her. Gardner's like the only one that just completely buys it whole cloth. But he used it to develop a modern witchcraft practice that became today's Wicca. Gardner even claimed to have been initiated into an original coven of, of this kind of ancient fertility cult, that had somehow survived without being detected for centuries and wrote a book called Witchcraft Today based on his experiences being part of this coven. Margaret Murray even wrote the foreword to that book, which I think is just so great. Murray's theories sunk into the general uh, image of all things witchy even further when they were taken up by horror writer H.P. Lovecraft, who refers to Murray and the witch cult in Western Europe specifically by name in his stories, The Horror at Red Hook and The Call of Cthulhu. Um, in both stories, the, what, the main uh, protagonist talks about how he had read that book. 
Lovecraft was fascinated by the specter of ancient cults that continued their lurid rituals in secret in modern day. So in the horror at Red Hook, one of these covens is meeting in New York City at like an abandoned old church. Wild. When Aaron Reich and English were writing their pamphlet in 1973, Murray's entry on witchcraft still appeared in the Encyclopedia Britannica. And though her main theories had been criticized by historians and folklorists, her claims about midwives had taken a sidestep, to use David Harley's phrase. Historian of medicine Thomas Forbes used Murray's comments about midwives as witches to help him make an argument in his 1962 article, Midwifery and Witchcraft, and 1966 book, The Midwife and Witch, that midwives were dangerous, ignorant crones. Literally, Forbes writes that midwives were, quote, ignorant, unskilled, poverty-stricken, and avoided. No wonder professional educated man midwives took over birth work. Of course, just a few years later, Aaron Reich and English took the opposite approach in using Murray's comments about midwives in Witch Midwife Nurse. Instead of ignorant crones, Aaron Reich and English saw women who were prosecuted by misogynist religious and medical authority figures for their role in women's health care. Between Forbes' article and the book, and Aaron Reich and English's pamphlet, the theory that midwives were intricately connected to witchcraft in the early modern period became fully and completely entrenched. And while Ehrenreich and English set out to show that witchcraft accusations were proof that women were important medical workers wrongly persecuted by the patriarchy, David Harley argues that by relying on shoddy research, they actually just perpetuated the idea that midwives were marginal, creepy old crones dabbling in the occult. Harley is pretty pointed in his critique. He writes that, quote, historians treating this subject have behaved like demonologists, repeating old stories without checking their sources and making assertions without data to substantiate them. So he's essentially saying Aaron Reich and English are behaving just like Kramer and Sprenger in writing Malleus Malficarum, which is it's a, it's a pretty pointed critique. Mm-hmm. Of course, Aaron Reich and English did not take kindly to that. And in introductions to later editions of the pamphlet, uh, they take, you know, they they try to argue back against Harley. But Harley uh, was not the only historian to take them to task. Since his article came out in 1990, many other historians, including early modern European midwifery expert Monica Green, have further debunked the connection between midwifery and witchcraft. So this is not just... Harley being anti-feminist or something like that. I was telling this whole saga to my husband while we were cleaning the kitchen the other day. And as I was talking about Aaron Reich and English's pamphlet, he said, oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that that's maybe the most interesting part of all of this to me. Aaron Reich and English were absolutely correct that witchcraft accusations were a way of policing women's behavior and that the Malefus Maleficarum is a profoundly misogynist document and that the midwives were eventually pushed out of medicine by the real doctors and that women have been systematically mistreated by professional medicine, right? They're right about all of those things. The midwife witch fit beautifully into this argument that they were building. 
And they found all of this evidence of the midwife witch's existence in Murray, in Zaz, in Forbes, even Heinrich Kramer's The Hammer of Witches. The problem was simply that they weren't historians. They understandably repeated claims made in famous works. And because they made so much sense, they took for granted that they were based on good research. And they weren't. The myth has proven so sticky precisely because it makes so much sense, which I think is why it's so interesting to me. And I just want to say, um, it sounds like I'm really ripping on Aaron Reich in English here, but I actually, the reason that I was so interested in the subject um, and started to read about it in the first place a couple of years ago is because when I was in college, I took a women's studies class. And when we were talking about women's health, we had to read this pamphlet. Um, and I read it. And like anyone would do, I just you know, I, I believed it, right? I believed every aspect of it. Um, and was it, it got in my brain in a way that when I sat down to write a lecture about the, or, you know, the midwifery, early modern midwifery for my medicine class, I thought, oh, I'm going to include a, a whole lecture on witchcraft accusations because midwifery and witchcraft, you know, went together. And then as I went to research it, I was like, oh, <laughs> like it opened up this whole other world of historiography about midwifery and witchcraft accusations. And then I realized that what I was basing my belief on was just Aaron Reagan English's argument in that original 1973 pamphlet. So it's like a it, it's a wild, wild tale. Hmm. That is wild. And I feel like I read <laughs> more for this than I have for like any episode. It was just like so many articles. I mean, this is one of the things we emphasize in our whatever, like uh, historical methods classes, right? You have to interrogate your sources in think through who they're writing for and why or what they're created for and what their purposes are. So mm-hmm. it 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 actually the thing that surprised me most about this entire thing was that Margaret Murray took the witchcraft confessions mm-hmm. at face value. Yeah. yeah. As if, I guess, well, I mean, I guess she was like a 1940s woman who wouldn't have been thinking too much about the uses of torture yeah. in judicial systems because right. at that point, England had stopped using torture in its criminal justice system. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And it was pretty much, you know, just like military, right? Yeah. Military yeah. uses in, in war. And, it, and it probably wasn't in the popular consciousness the way that it is now post-Iraq and Afghanistan where there was really, you know, right. controversies about the use of torture. Right. Or even in 1612 when, you know, priests are writing things right. about how torture is not a useful yeah, tool exactly. because of all these reasons, right? Yeah. So that's super interesting. Yeah. But yeah. Um, it, and it is, it's interesting too because under other circumstances, Margaret Murray taking these women at their word would be like a powerful feminist right. reading of a primary source, which is what Aaron right. Reich and English want to be doing, right? Right. Um, and Murray is sort of is building this world where women are powerful and they have this, you know, um, position against the controlling patriarchy of the Catholic Church. I mean, it totally makes sense, but it's not correct at all. Right, right. 
Mm. There's so many layers of this, too, because Murray is also doing this work because she's so frustrated with her, with her Egyptology career. Right. Which is partly, you know, put on hold because of the war, but also because she was a woman and she had a hard time breaking into that field, you know. Um, Do you think that Margaret Murray is the inspiration for the classical Egyptologist woman character of the film The Mummy from the early 2000s starring Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weisz? I bet that she is the inspiration for a lot of those characters. I wasn't thinking of her, although that's a good point. I was thinking of all of there was several. I don't remember how many, two or three um, Agatha Christie novels and Mm. mystery short stories about Egyptologists or or archaeologists, and many of them were women trying to do, you know, this this kind of archaeological or anthropological work. Um, and so that's what I, because it, it was right during the same time period, right? Right. So that's what right. I was um, sort of imagining. There's so much. This whole episode, I was just like, this is wild. It like, I don't even know, like the the. Um, what was the other part of it? Oh, like the birth of Wicca and yeah. Thomas Zaz and Michelle Foucault. And like, it's just wild. It's so wild. And you can see like the waves of how the historiography worked, right? Like, I don't know. It's, it's fascinating. And I know historiography like sucks and people hate it. But th- this was an interesting way of seeing how the times in which we live affects the histories that we write. Yeah. So. And I also want to say Barbara Ehrenreich is great. I'm not familiar with Deirdre English's other work, but like Barbara Ehrenreich wrote some really fantastic books later in her career. So this is no shade on Barbara Ehrenreich. Good. Yeah. Read Nickel and Dimed, people, if you've never read it. Nickel and Dimed. Thank you all for listening. Um, I'm actually going to make this be the first episode, so I hope you enjoy the rest of our series on witches we have three more great episodes coming your way um and i'm so uh, glad we did this whole series just on witches i I was apprehensive about it because i didn't think that i would have anything interesting to do but i loved this episode it was really fun i want to do another series on witches let's just take over the history of witchcraft podcast maybe we should do every halloween should just be witchcraft episodes yeah just witchcraft episodes i think that sounds perfect because now i want to do one on wicca yes that would be that would be good. Yeah, Gerald I Gardner. had no idea that Wicca was like, I don't know. I just assumed it was um, as old as time. Ancient. Yeah. Ancient religion. Exactly. <laughs> I did. <laughs> yeah. Which technically, that's, that's what G- Gerald was saying that it was. That's what he was hoping yeah. for. That was his, his goals. Okay. Yeah. But no. <laughs> 1940, England. Yeah. Weird. Um. Yeah. So follow us on Facebook, Twitter. Um. Not Instagram. (laughs) Not Instagram anymore. I mean, you can follow us there, but you ain't going to see nothing. Right. Um, Join our Facebook group, Dig History Pod Squad, for fun conversations and memes. Yes. You can find us on Himalaya, which is uh, Himalaya and Patreon, which are both places where you can get exclusive content and stuff, uh, ad-free. And support the podcast. Mm -hmm, Support the podcast. And also, you can find us on Lyceum. 
mm-hmm. which is a really neat uh, app that will allow you to make playlists out of educational podcasts. Super, super helpful if you are teaching online this semester. Might be a good way to get some content to your students without having to Zoom lecture at them. Yeah. And as always, uh, leave us a five-star rating and a short review on iTunes yes, and help other, other people find our podcast. Yes. All right. Go uh, hang out with your exactly 13-person coven as part of your witchy fertility call, Avril. I, and uh, update your your coven on what uh, <laughs> what, what happened. What week. activities you took part in this week? That's my yep. favorite part. Like they have Checklist. agendas. They're following Robert's rules. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Bye. Bye. This podcast was produced by the historians of Dig, Elizabeth Garner Masaryk, Sarah Hanley Cousins, Marissa Rhodes, and me, Avril Earls. Thanks for listening. We could and should do a deeply unpleasant and uh, an entire episode. We could and should do an entirely entire episode. Oh my god! What? Ew! Oh, Um, I thought you were yelling at my the way that I'd written that. No, I just can't talk. But also, ew. Yeah, no, it would be you. But yeah, yeah. So (laughs) with her grace, her neighbor Grace Thurlow. With her grace. With her grace. She had to take a class with other 15 other women, during which Wait, everyone pulled... you just said, with other 15 other. <laughs> oh. And the first graduate program in women's history was established by Gerda Lerner at Sarah Lawrence College in, seven, in 1792. <laughs> 1792. Uh, it would be so much cooler if there was a program in, America, in women's history in 1792. Your chair's doing it again. Just oh, so it's, you know. yeah, it's me moving. I'm sorry. I'm wiggling. Can you, can you pat it? Like a little cushion on it? It's not the, it's not the seat. It's the, like the arms. I think it's as it's moving. I'll try to sit perfectly still. Well, only when you're talking. You can move around when I'm talking. Cause I can cut that Right. Out. But I tend to wiggle around when I'm talking. <laughs> I know. It's a real problem. You're a wiggler. All right, I got to go. My husband's throwing a fit.